0: I was always told that the two things that small business owners need in order to stay out of trouble were lawyers and accountants. So, I didn't have the money uh, to go and pay thousands of dollars to lawyers and accountants, but I did have the time uh, to go to the library. <laughs> so, what I would do is I would spend a lot of time in the library reading, and I would take copious, detailed notes so that I could help myself understand all the pieces of a business operation. I thought to myself, if if that's what you're good at, teaching yourself, Use it. I always had this burning desire to make sure that I took advantage of opportunities, took advantage of uh, any talents that I had in order to achieve those major goals that I've had since 13. Reading is just part of it. It's the obvious thing uh, because what reading does is allows me to accumulate knowledge without having to ask for permission, without having to get an appointment. If it's in a book and I can sit with it and I can comprehend it, I can get what I need from that book.
1: Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with T.Q. Sinkungu. Together we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. My guest today is Ed Hopkins. Ed is a friend and a fellow Air Force Academy grad, graduated before I did and followed on the Air Force Academy with a career in the Air Force. That was short, but very successful. And what you're going to hear as I talk to Ed and you hear our conversation is that this guy has a unique, serious confidence. I mean, he's very confident in himself, and it's a good type of confidence. I think it's it's a, the type of thing that is born of a place that he knows he needs it to do what he does. But it's also born of a passion that he had from when he was a very young person in his in his early teens, that he wanted to get his family... Out of some very poor circumstances, he wanted to get himself out of there and get his family out of there. And that spurred him on to use his God given gift of intellect, as well as lessons from his stepfather and the ability to learn how to learn new topics. He used that to be able to succeed in high school academically as well as athletically. And he graduated then from the Air Force Academy with big responsibilities in the Air Force, basically turning over the Panama Canal. And you'll hear about that in detail. He then, after getting out of the Air Force, he read dozens of books to learn how to become a successful entrepreneur, Burned the ships, as they say, and then built and sold a business for over seven figures, becoming a millionaire before he was 30 years old. After that, he spent three years studying all types of topics and eventually being drawn towards potentially being a professional philosopher. He did some post-baccalaureate studies in philosophy and linguistics at the University of Arizona, And then he realized at a certain point um, after a conversation with one of his professors that the black community still needed help. So he had to use his gifts and talents um, and take them to go to law school and then use the law to help others. His ability to convince juries that his clients had been damaged and they had suffered, it led him to build his own successful law practice, first with some partners and then on his own. And you're going to learn the importance of charting your own path. He chose a direction that said he could do it on his own. He didn't have to rely on others in a big law firm or elsewhere. But when you can use and when you take advantage of the resources that exist to learn and you learn on your own and you learn from others, you can achieve your goals. He talks about that, how he did that and shows how you can do that as well. Most of the time we talked about how he did that as opposed to the impact or the influence he's gotten by virtue of the tremendous success that he's had. But I have to say that he's used that impact to the benefit of us or others as a result. One example is that his influence in the state of uh, Colorado has led them to the point that he's helped create the process that the governors of Colorado now use to select state judges. That's just one area of many that Ed's had a tremendous impact on in the state of Colorado. And at the same time, he's been a mentor to many, including myself and many others. And the ripple effects of the impact he's had on their lives are going to be felt nationwide, if not internationally. So please listen to and enjoy my interview with Ed Hopkins. My guest today is Ed Hopkins. Ed, welcome to Breaking the Glass.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So, uh, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with you, man. Um, definitely a brother who I admire and consider a mentor myself. Um, and the way we normally start off these conversations, Ed, is we do what I call a lightning round background. So, why don't you talk about what it was like coming up as Ed? Just do a quick survey of young life um, up into maybe like the college area so people can kind of get a feel for how you came up.
0: Okay. I was born in Long Beach, California, 1973, Memorial Hospital. I lived in Long Beach, California uh, all the way up until I was about 18 with a short stint or two in Compton. I went to John Muir, uh, which is a, a school on the west side of Long Beach. Then I went to a school called Riley Elementary. Then from there, I went to a school called Hughes, which was in the Bixby-Knowles area of Long Beach. And then from there, I went to Long Beach Poly High School, and that's where life really started to kind of take shape for me, my, my identity, my, my plans, everything started to come together at Long Beach Poly. Right. It was, at, it was at high school where I really became a good enough athlete to attract the attention of recruiters, and I... Was fortunate to have some outstanding coaches who saw my potential, encouraged me to work very hard on my athleticism, and had the ability to help bring it out. Right. So because of my, uh, my time at Long Beach Poly, I became uh, a top-notch athlete for football. But I also had an opportunity to participate in Long Beach Poly's gifted and talented program, okay. uh, which is called PACE. And that particular program was the, the cutting-edge public school gifted and talented program at the time. I had been assigned a cohort of students All the ever since I was a young man uh, due to some uh, early IQ tests that we had taken. And I had been in these gifted and talented programs the whole time. But to me, it was a normal thing. Uh, I would spend um, my school days uh, with a bunch of kids, many of whom had been bussed in. Uh, to take advantage of these gifted and talented programs. And then my after school would be with the brothers and sisters in my neighborhood. So right. it was a weird type of a social mix. Um, but in Long Beach Poly, uh, that PACE program combined with the athletic program gave me the best possible chance uh, to do what I ended up doing, which was going to the Air Force Academy. So that's, that's the first 18 years from a very self-centered perspective. I didn't tell you much about family, friends. Mother sister, all of whom played a big role uh but uh I figured if we wanted to keep it brief, I needed to keep it self centered
1: no well and, some things that would be interesting um one is uh for people who don't know about Long Beach poly, it's a pretty uh renowned high school in the l a area greater Los Angeles area. I actually had a friend who uh or my wife's godmother's daughter, so I guess a god sister went there. She graduated, went to Stanford, did really well there. She was like a TA for Condoleezza Rice. So I know like Supreme top students come from there. It's always a great to, to to do well there athletically is to be doing one of the best, doing well at one of the best athletic programs in the state of California, if not the country. So for you to excel there is obviously, um, to be at the top of the top uh, from my experience, you know, living in LA for almost 20 years, haven't heard a lot about poly. Um, And you you said your plan started taking shape. So what kind of things were forming for you in those early years in terms of what your long term plans are going to be? Do you feel like you you even had seeds of way back when?
0: The first time I really started seriously considering what I was going to do after I graduated from high school, when I happened uh, when I was about 13 years old, I had a tragic, a tragic event occur that I don't like talking about publicly. But that event caused me to really take stock of myself, my surroundings, what the future held for me. And it was both tragic and at the same time, um, motivational. I had a strong desire as a result of that tragic event to want to get out of that neighborhood, get my family out of that neighborhood so that neither I nor they would be surrounded by dangerous circumstances. That was my sole focus after that. And from that point forward, I took everything much more seriously than I had before. I I took school much more seriously. It had always been easy to me. But at this point, instead of just uh, studying to get uh, A's and B's, I focused on getting all A's. I wanted to excel at every class. Uh, I wanted to get everything uh, to be the best possible uh, grades that I could get. And then same thing with sports. I wanted to be the very best uh, at everything I did uh, with respect to sports. And the whole purpose behind it was I wanted to get an athletic scholarship because there were a lot of guys I knew personally who had pulled that off coming up through the Long Beach uh, athletic program system. And uh, I also figured that if I couldn't get an athletic scholarship, my backup plan would be to be a very good student. And maybe I could uh, decrease the cost of going to school by having great grades. So I didn't want to leave anything on the table. And I wanted to make sure that I did everything I could do put myself in the best possible position uh, to, to reach the goal of getting out of that neighborhood, getting out of those circumstances more specifically, and helping my family do the same. You have so an, obvious, that I,
1: an obvious connection towards your importance of your family, um, wanting to help them and drive them to a better future. Um, two questions in that vein. One of them is, um, would you even consider yourself, I was asked, were you high class, middle class, low class, no class? What, what level were you guys, you, you think, uh, financially while you, when you were growing up?
0: I used to live in the Springdale apartment complex. And anybody who knows Long Beach, particularly the west side, uh, knows what's up with Springdale. Springdale is where poor folks live. Yeah. So, um, I used to live in Springdale. And I, I remember a lot of years in Springdale. I, I witnessed a couple of things that young children should never have to witness in Springdale. And um, we were definitely, by any reasonable person's account, lower class. Uh, I do recall days standing in line for government cheese, flour, all the basics. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to walk miles to the grocery store and pay for a pound of ground beef with pennies because my mother would make me do it. Hmm. Uh, I know what it's like uh, to stand in line (laughs) at the grocery store, uh, get to the point where you have to pay, not know what's going on with taxes, and uh, end up being two or three pennies short after uh. the cashier sat there and counted out all your pennies, and have some kind person standing behind you give you what you need to get out the door. So I understand those experiences. I understand what it's like to have your lights cut off. I understand what it's like to have to beg for money from grandparents and other folks, and watch your parents suffer. Well, my mother suffer indignities. I've I, I've seen uh, I've seen households with a lot of anger, uh, fighting. I've seen men hit women. So I grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a type of circumstances where I got to experience a lot of the things that folks in lower class households get to experience. And that was my first 16, 17 years.
1: That must have been pretty motivational to like the, the confluence of all those things to spur you on to success. Um, and, and, and with regard to family, my other question was, I know your mother is a very influential part of your life to the extent that you, you know, you're comfortable why don't you tell us, like, whether it's her or, or your family, how, what are some a moment or two or even just to uh, uh, give us a flavor of how motivational they are in terms of a position in your life to, to help you become whatever you wanted to become?
0: OK, well, my mother by far is the most influential person uh, in my life. She is uh, a heroine, in my opinion. Uh, she is the greatest woman who has ever, ever lived. And she's not a well-educated woman, uh, but despite lacking a good education, she taught me an excellent moral code. She taught us loyalty. Uh, She taught us hard work. She taught us not to pity ourselves. Uh, She taught us that sometimes you have to suffer indignities in order to take the next step, but that doesn't mean you become undignified. Mm. Uh, She taught us to uh, make sure that we did our best And she never let us settle. So, for instance, when I would come home with a few B's on my report card, uh, a lot of parents would pat their children on the back, especially where I live. You know, a lot of parents would have been elated for their kids to come home with a few B's and the rest A's. My mother would ask me point point blank, why didn't you get all A's? Mm. Uh, And the reason why is because she knew my potential and she wanted to kind of help me uh, keep that competitive fire burning because I've always been a competitive uh, young man. And she always wanted to tap into it. But most importantly, what my mom did for my sister and me, who she raised by herself in many ways, uh, because our fathers weren't really around too much. What she did for us is that she showed us what it's like to never give up despite your circumstances. She never gave up. She, she would hold two or three jobs at a time, but she would come home man, and she would still cook us a cook us a meal. Right. Uh, still take care of the house. Uh, she would still figure out a way to spend time with us, and she would still get us the things we wanted for Christmas, even though she couldn't afford it. My mom is an excellent example right. of a woman doing the very best she could with everything she had, and that's that's how I see her. And uh, nobody could tell me different.
1: I, I can. Uh, I really feel that man. We, my my family is. I probably would consider it like. I, I can't compare experiences with you. We were probably like lower middle class. Um, we lived in a suburb of of Dallas in a nice home that my parents still live in to this day but the thing you said about the things you said about your mom remind me of my mom she would my mom would wake up with us on christmas morning pull out a big old stack of presents she bought for us to have like you said all the things we wanted to have to to make as nice of a household as we could you know we didn't have the fanciest things you know maybe you get one Nintendo throughout your childhood for all the kids and that's a big deal um but then she would leave from Christmas celebration and go to work to work because she worked shift work at the time, um, at Rockwell International, so she could get paid triple time to pay for all those gifts that she just bought us, you know? Um she knew she got paid that much, but that's what she would do, you know, like to give us the nicest things. But she would still be there like in my karate tournaments or at our basketball games and and spur us on, like you said, so I can really relate to having a mother present who you know just kind of gives you everything to make you think like i want to do something to make sure that i make her proud you know and uh, no doubt and do what she did for me so so i can totally relate to that i am um, i wonder so you you also went to the air force academy which is of course where we met and i gotta tell you my my recollection of meeting ed hopkins was a brother who was wearing uh in basic training there's a first basic training a second basic training the second part of it you do out in what's called jack's valley which is the middle of nowhere it's like really not fun camping that you do um to learn military training out in the wilderness and i just remember this this brother being six what six two six three um at 250 plus and a shirt he probably took his little brother's shirt to put on because he was bulging through that shirt like a like the rock you know of our time and whatever he said i was gonna do you know <laughs> because because he was intimidating enough to make us believe that he was serious um so i you know, I, I always revered and admired you man, um from the beginning and when I saw you my you know first day of, of basic of second basic training on for you, the college years are a formative experience what were what a couple of things you took away from your academy experience that that you know are kind of with you to this day
0: Two things: I chose to go to the academy because I needed a guarantee i didn't want to go to one of the other football programs who had offered me scholarships because none of them guaranteed that I would have a college degree if I got injured but the academy made it very clear that me playing football uh, was not necessary for me to graduate and they also made it very clear that I would have a job when I graduated looking back on that I I think to myself man I wish I could have met a few people who knew a little bit more about the white-collar world than, uh, than I knew when I was 17, 18, making these decisions. But um, I made the that? decision. Be, the reason why is because I didn't have a, a good appreciation of what my other options entailed. I could have, I had an opportunity to go to an Ivy League school. Right. But I didn't have an opportunity to go to an Ivy League school with a guarantee like the academy was offering or a job like the academy was offering. So I didn't have people around me who could help me understand the differences uh, over the long term of going to these different institutions. I think back on it though, and I I truly believe that God blessed me by allowing me to go to the Air Force Academy because it was exactly what I needed at that time Mm. in my life. Um, So the first thing that, uh, that struck me about the Academy is I arrived in the bus like we all did, and I didn't know what to expect my heart pounding uh sweating uh not knowing why i'm sweating and haven't even done anything yet but i'm just so nervous and i see this very svelte young man get onto the bus with a uniform that has no loose fabric <laughs> <laughs> this uh this young man he, he looks like a an adonis physically yeah. and he gets on the bus and immediately he 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 starts yelling and screaming at us, get on the front one third of your seat, straighten your back up. And you know, this kind of shocking experience, um, some of it was normal because I came from a very rigorous football training program. So I was accustomed uh, to being yelled at and being directed to do things difficult physically uh, with my body through football. But I wasn't accustomed to this environment, to all these white people. Uh, with power and authority over me, mm. uh, to an institution that looked like it had been scrubbed, sanitized. Yeah. Uh, oh, so, every, all this marble, all of this gray, all of these sharp, cur- no curves on the building, everything sharp and pointed and edged. Everything was just so different. And I felt like I was in a foreign world. But I remember that day and this guy getting up uh, and yelling and screaming at us. And I remember thinking to myself, what did I just do? You know, because I, I thought to myself, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm going to hit somebody is what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, how am, I going to, how am I going to get through? How am I going to muster the self-discipline to get in line when I come from an environment where I was the boss? I was the guy running things. Right. I was the top dog. So that first experience, uh, you know, it, it, it broke me. It broke me in ways that uh, I never really revealed to anybody except for my mother to whom I cried. Uh, When I was at the academy, in private, but my mother was very, very wise, and she told me that um, I can't quit. And she said the reason why I can't quit is not because I don't have a place to come to. I could always come home, but she says I. She told me I can't quit because that's just not what I do. Mm. That's not what we do. So, uh, so you know, she kind of gave me that pep talk, pep pep talk, uh, in a way, a tough love type of pep talk. And from there, everything was cool. I, mm. I, I just learned how to tolerate um, the, what we would consider where I came from enough disrespect to just immediately start a fight. Right. And I learned how to tolerate it. And that self-discipline has really served me well in life. So that was the one thing I remember a lot. The other thing I remember a lot are the relationships I developed with men like you. Uh, and dozens of other brothers that I've kept in touch with. Those are some of the most important relationships to this day to me. Those are the two things that I remember most about the Academy.
1: Agreed on the relationship piece. I am, Something strikes me, man, about the way you talk about um, your early life and then even early into the Academy, even though you said that, and I feel this way sometimes too, like I wish I had somebody who would have told me X, Y, Z, so I'd have known better I, then I would have did better. But it still seems to me like you had a very strategic way that you approached life from an early age. Um, what do you think gave you that sort of strategic framework and way of thinking, you know, from an early point on about this is how I want to lead my life. This is the direction I want to go in so that you could, you know, you even though you may have missed certain things like which school you could have gone to and some of the opportunities. You still made some very wise choices within that that seems strategic to me for such a young person. Where do you think that came from? And, and is it even true, you think?
0: I think it's true. I, I, I look back on it and I and I did make some good decisions when I was young. It's not so much because I had great mentors. I just think that I was contemplative at a young age, pensive. And I would really try to think through how doing something or not doing something, what the consequences would be. I, I really did a lot of that, maybe to the point where uh, people might, might think I was worried too much at a young age. And I can tell you right now, TQ, even at the age of 16, because at that point, I had already spent years helping my mother pay bills because I worked while I played football, while I went to poly and was involved in Pace. I also held down a job, and I had to because I couldn't let my mother carry all this weight alone. Right. So I had a full-time job on top of all of that so I could pay the electric bill, and so I could have a, little, a few dollars in my pocket without having to ask my mother for it. So all of this stuff was, was was going on and I would always look at the situation and I would think to myself that, you know, I'm a teenager now. What's, what's life going to be like in 20 years? Where am I going to be in 20 years? I would think about stuff like that. Yeah. Think about how am I going to get my mom out of this neighborhood? How am I going to get her into a house? What's going to happen when I get married one day? My kids are going to need money for school. I was thinking about these things as a teenager. My mother wasn't asking me to think about these things nobody around me was talking about these things but I was thinking about these things it's because I wanted to build be capable of building a more ideal life for the family I would one day lead
1: but if you didn't and like, I if you didn't have the mentors around you though where did you get the answers from you know like where did you get quality answers because you could think about it but not some people think about it. It's just like I don't know and they kind of stop you came up with good answers where did they come
0: from Two people, two people really, really helped me with respect to my answers. Um, I had a stepfather, Albert Ford, who passed away last year. Mm. And Albert, uh, even though he wasn't around, we didn't live together except for a brief time when we had fell on hard times and we moved in with him briefly. Uh, Albert would allow me to come to his home on the weekends with my sister, even though my sister was his daughter. I was not his son. So I was like his stepson. And he was very kind. Uh, to allow me to come over to his home and treat me like one of his sons, even though he had he had no duty to do so, but Albert uh taught me how to play chess, he mm. taught me how to uh, teach myself things technical computers uh, things related to uh, uh, welding things related to photography, uh, things that he were, he 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 did for a living or were his hobbies, and he also would help me think about how important it was to get a great education, even though Uh, That wasn't something he had done. He hadn't gone to college, but he would always talk about how a great education is is, is the first step to doing whatever it is you want to do in life. But he would show me an example of how to plan. So what I mean by that is Albert did a great job of always researching uh, before he made a major purchase, for instance, on electronics. And I used to always joke about it. Why do you do so much homework? Uh, consumer Reports, for instance, why do you do so much homework before buying a TV? Right. And I see him do these types of things. This gave me uh, an example of a guy who thought ahead and actually planned out his moves. Uh, teaching me te- chess was another way that he helped me think strategically about the future. But he even didn't talk to me about a future family I would lead. He didn't talk to me about those things. So I didn't get it from him. Um, the other person who was a big example in my life was, was my coach, Coach Whiting. Uh, who taught uh, taught us uh, a lot of life lessons uh, while we were uh, playing football, and he did a pretty good job of uh, talking to me sometimes in private about what my future might hold. But even he didn't talk to me about the long the long term consequences of my actions. So where I think I got that from, uh, I think that man, I, I really, I, I I don't really know. I don't really know because I don't I don't recall having anyone who talked to me about Life after high school, life after college, life when I got married, nobody really sat down and talked to me about that. And I didn't have examples of that kind of household around me. I grew up in a single parent household with a white mother raising two black kids in a black neighborhood. Hmm. So I, I didn't have examples of what I wanted to do uh, other than television. Oh, wait a second. I can't believe I, 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 did, I forgot the Huxtables, man. The Huxtables. <laughs> That's where I got it. What? That's right. That has to be it. Okay, it has to be the Huxtables, the Cosby Show. Wow, that's about all I had as far as uh, instruction on what uh, life should be like. That's where I first started thinking I wanted to become a doctor. To be honest, hmm. uh, from watching the Huxtables show. Yeah, that's it. I almost forgot about it. You the know, TV show.
1: That's that's incredible for a lot of reasons. One thing I'll say though before I hit that is it sounds like um, from your stepfather though you did learn strategic thinking which as a skill itself is important where if you don't have wisdom that comes with time and experience you can at least have a process for gaining wisdom and and your time spent thinking allowed you to gain wisdom at least make better choices than if you're just sticking your thumb in the air and you know or making guesses you were you were at least with whatever information you had information you had you were making the best choice you could given the information and a thought process is what it sounds like to me. And the more you do it, the better you got at it and the more wisdom you had to apply to the decisions you were making, which I think it's a big lesson for young people, especially in in communities of color, because we don't often have the wisdom around us to help us make those decisions. But then you do have The Cosby Show, which makes media way more important than I think that we make it to be as we talk about it normally, Um, because I bet that was a big influence for a lot of people, The Cosby Show. Just like it's unfortunate. I'll little... oh, go ahead.
0: It's unfortunate it was such a big influence hmm. because that's where that's where I got the the idea of a black family with hmm. with black professionals leading it. Uh, that's where I got that's where I got examples of what it would be like to have two parents in a household raising multiple kids, no one struggling over money, uh, both parents well educated, doing well in their careers. Uh, The kids all on their path to go to college. It wasn't there was no doubt that everybody's going to college and the types of uh, problems and challenges that they faced. I I didn't you know, I saw some of it, but most of it was foreign to me. But I knew that's what I wanted and I knew that uh, I was going to work towards that. So it was definitely the Cosby show.
1: Wow. No, that's crazy. It makes me think of and, and it's hard to go too deep into this right now. But I'll just say that like this, the movie Black Panther, I just saw it. A couple of times actually in the last few days and it makes me wonder about what the the actual social impact will be for people watching who don't have examples or have only negative examples of all sorts of things that were portrayed in that movie what kind of positive examples it could give and how far it could spur people on to whatever success they may have but i don't know do you have any thoughts about that at all or you want to just move on from that
0: I haven't had a chance to see the Black Panther movie yet, and I feel ashamed because I wanted to go see it three or four times to support it. I wanted to buy dozens of tickets to just help everybody else go see it. Uh, I'm glad that it did well, but I don't want I don't want you to speak one more word about it because I don't want you to spoil one moment of it. Uh, okay. When I do get to see it, which is probably going to be tomorrow with my wife, uh, I want to be able to just absorb all of it, man. I'm so happy that they put it together.
1: All right, well, we'll move on from that and and, uh, and start thinking about... You get through the Air Force Academy, um, you navigated your way through um, on the strength of the experience you had at Poly, plus the push your, your mom gave you early on in the experience to now um, being a professional in the Air Force. Um, what, what was your thought process that you approached your early military career?
0: Well, before I answer that, I don't want to, I don't want to forget to mention that I would not have graduated from the Air Force Academy but for my brothers, mm. the men that I became very close friends with. They are the reasons why I graduated. How I so? would have, well, a couple of reasons. They kept me motivated uh, to, to do well academically. It was very difficult uh, for me to acculturate, uh, I, I didn't really have the tools uh to fit into that kind of environment like I was like I was telling you I come from a city where you look at me wrong uh walking down my block and um something's going to happen yeah so I just didn't have the tools uh to really get through a place like that and there were a couple of couple of brothers who who were just man they came in at the right time and helped me get through that place the friendships made it so much easier uh there was one brother in particular who saved me uh, in a very important time, but uh, I just wanted to make sure that I acknowledged that that because of those brothers I graduated, and if it weren't for about a half dozen brothers, I would not have graduated. Yeah. Um, so when I got into the when I when I actually became an active duty officer, my first job and to this day my best job was as an admissions officer in the uh, minority enrollment department of the Air Force Academy's admissions department. And in that job, I had an opportunity to, as a 22-year-old, still young-looking person, uh, to go to high schools uh, in my hometown and in areas near my hometown and expose uh, kids who were just like me in, lot, in a lot of respects uh, to the concept of the academy because I didn't know anything about it until they started recruiting me. So I got a chance to go around to... Uh, go around the western uh, region of the United States to do that for a little over a year. And to this day, it's still the best job I ever had. Um, After that job, uh, the Air Force sent me to Mountain Home, Idaho. uh, And it was there that I I, I ended up having a lot of temporary duty assignments to the desert. um, And it was a very eye-opening experience for me. That was the first time I, I traveled extensively around the world. After Mountain Home, Air Force Base in Idaho. I had an assignment that put me in a headquarters job uh, at Davis monthan Air Force Base, but I was working for 12th Air Force or Southern Command Air Forces, which was a joint headquarters command. And there I was uh, the deputy comptroller for the counter-narcotics mission that the Air Force did. And that was my second best job. Uh, while I that job, I traveled extensively to Central and South America. Okay, as the Air Force transitioned uh, its uh its mission from Howard Air Force Base uh, to where it operates now in multiple forward operating locations.
1: What what made that job so fun for you?
0: Well, it was the first time that um, it was the first time that I spent months at a time. I mean, months at a time doing. Very, very high stakes work. So in that particular job, I was responsible for developing budget estimates for more than $150 million worth of military assets. In 1998, the U.S. government no longer controlled the Panama Canal. And I don't know how much you know about Franklin Roosevelt, president, and what he did to make the Panama Canal happen, but uh, that was a big feat Uh, For America uh, to take control over the Panama Canal, especially when most of the world's goods and and all types of things were being transported by sea.
1: sure.
0: So it was one of the things that helped the United States in its infancy, in my opinion, become one of the most powerful nations in the world. Well, in 1998, uh, Panama took, took control over it. And that also meant that Panama wanted us to get out, get our military presence out. So we had Howard Air Force Base there, and we were doing a lot out of Howard Air Force Base. Well, there wasn't a lot of very advanced planning up leading up to us having to get out of uh, Panama. So the the entire Department of Defense had to scramble uh, to try to figure out ways to kind of move things around, set up new operating locations so that we can continue to do the mission, just no longer in Panama. So I was the guy. Uh, who's responsible for building the budget for the Air Force's role. And it was an amazing thing because I traveled uh, throughout the, the, the South America and Central America, uh, dealt with uh, with high-level government officials as we set up very, very large bank accounts and, and paid very large bills uh, at these Ford operating locations. And uh, it was just an eye-opening experience for me. It was the first time that... The government had entrusted me with millions and millions of dollars, and I would uh, be able to go into a bank, cash a check for three or $400,000, and uh, have someone escort me uh, to where I needed to go in order to make payments. So it was a very interesting time for me.
1: That must have gave you a lot of confidence.
0: It did give me a lot of confidence, because I worked very hard to ensure that everybody, could, everybody had good grounds to believe that I was going to do an excellent job. And I got a lot of feedback from the officers uh, I worked for. They they did confirm that I, I did a good job and they, everybody trusted me to, to do what needed to be done because we were doing something that hadn't been done before. And um, the Air Force put a lot of responsibility in my hands and um, it, did, it did give me a lot of confidence.
1: Now you, um, at this point, is this where you decided that you had to make a choice whether the Air Force was going to be a career or ended up going into the private sector. Is it was it after that position, or was, did you serve any more time in the Air Force?
0: Well, along the way, uh, that military career, you know, I got married. So I met my wife while I was at that job mm. in the admissions department. I met her at the Thanksgiving of uh, of nineteen ninety five. Yeah, and she had two children, and. I fell in love with her, and even though uh, I was only a 24, 22, 24-year-old 24 man uh, when, I, when I was courting her, um, I could not imagine uh, living without her. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to get married that, that young initially. I had no plans to do it. But I I knew that I had to marry Janet, mm-hmm. and that meant that I had to make sure that I made the best possible home uh, for Moses and Monet, the children I would end up uh, uh, parenting along with Janet. Those are now my son and daughter. Right. So when I uh, when I when we got married in 1997, that was after a couple of years of courting, and it was after I had already gotten to Mountain Home Air Force Base, and it was before I ended up uh, in Arizona at Davis Monthan Air Force Base. Because of all the things I had done in the military and all of the time I had spent overseas, I had. Be- developed a bit of a, a specialty, a bit of a niche. I was one of the most experienced Air Force officers at operating banks. Uh basically, you know, banks for the Air Force and foreign location.
1: Hmm. Like so, actual banks? Like you were the w- you were running the bank.
0: It wasn't so much actual banks, but I would control and account for large amounts of cash. Right. And we would pay bills with these with these with cash. We wouldn't use bank drafts typically to pay bills we would instead uh use cash to pay bills so that we didn't have to rely on those banks i got it uh so because it could be a mission issue if we had to rely on banks so what we what we were doing back then i was one of the the few officers in the air force who who was doing it so while i was at davis Mothin and this was a couple years into my marriage with Janet and uh, Moses and Monet, uh, my, my my blessing of being able to be their parent, we had to make a decision. Uh, the Air Force wanted to send me, likely, to Germany or to the Pentagon. Hmm. That was going to be my next duty assignment. Uh, they wanted me to work at other headquarters and do what I was doing for the previous two jobs that I, ha- I had held. Well, at this point, Moses and Monet had to developed relationships with people in Tucson, Arizona. They had a life there. We had purchased a home there and we had to make a decision whether I was going to uproot everyone again or where I was going to get out. So about a year before I had to make the decision, um, I started looking at my options. And one of my options was to stay in Arizona, but only if I could put together a business that would enable me to sell my services back to the military uh, as an independent contractor. So I started looking into ways I could do that without violating any of the ethical rules. And I wrote a business plan. I started talking to people who might be able to help me by serving as a prime contractor the first year so that I could be a subcontractor under them. And I eventually was lucky enough to, uh, to land a contract. Uh, that enabled me to stay in Tucson more than double the pay I was making as a as an officer and do very similar work to what I was doing while I was at the headquarters. Now, I held that held that job for a few years and I was able to expand that business. And that was the first time I had a business that was very successful uh, that ultimately ended up uh, Enabled me to make a, a little bit of money.
1: So but, let me um, back up the bus for a second and ask some specific questions. So you're in the Air Force, managing lots of dollars, essentially operating like a a bank manager to manage the cash. You'd have to use the banks in the area, um, and you were successful at this um, at this this job that you're doing. What do you think? And you were successful in a place where. I think a little bit generically, you got a lot of responsibility and, and trust, and were entrusted with a lot of authority from a government organization and you perform well. What do you think are some key characteristics that you had? Um, when you say you worked hard, break that down a little bit. What are some characteristics that you worked hard at or that you had that you that you leveraged there that made you successful, that a person would need to be
0: successful at it? Well, when you work for smart people, there are a couple of traits that make you a go-to, and I had those traits. So I worked for general officers, colonels, a lot of high-ranking individuals, and they came to me over and over again because I was that type of person who, you didn't really have to give me a lot of details about what you needed done. You could count on me to do my own homework, uh, to ask questions, to do research, uh, to come up with uh, models, to write things down, Uh, to really dig into projects and find the answer uh, independently. Hmm. And that was something that uh, a lot of officers didn't really offer. Uh, But I did that over and over. I actually took a lot of pleasure. I had a lot of pleasure in teaching myself things, learning things, investigating things, and coming up with the answer, uh, the better answer uh, than the person who had done the job previously. I also took a lot of pride. Uh, And being the guy who was always the expert. So I always spent an extra hour or two every day uh, keeping tabs on the latest developments in my particular career field in the Air Force. I always uh, spent a lot of time studying uh, things that would help me be a better officer. Um, I was one of the first people in the Air Force, for instance, to uh, pass the Certified Defense Financial Manager Program, hmm. which was uh, one of the early certification programs for people who did what I did. Not only did I pass that exam, I developed a course so I could teach other people who were working at that base what they needed to know to pass the exam. So I'm oh, one wow. of those types self-starter uh, autodidactic types who takes pleasure in, in, in teaching himself and figuring out how to learn things and how to actually give people much more than they thought I would deliver. That's that's something I've always take, taken a lot of pleasure in doing. So just doing that as a habit, uh, what it did is it gave me uh, the kind of situation where people would always look to me to do increasingly complex things. And when, when somebody had something very difficult that had to get done, a difficult presentation, uh, they had to coordinate with a whole bunch of folks, in order to do something uh, that would have to be pitched to uh, the Pentagon or for, for something like that. They would always bring me in so that I would be involved with it because I, I just had a talent for this type of project management, and this type of self-teaching. Now, how did but that I
1: translate think- to, so it sounds like it it, it had to translate to the, the business that you started when you, so you transitioned out and did a business where you could and, and many folks, you know, a good friend of mine, Jay Marone, is the same thing. He did contracting in the military and there's different types of ways he could provide those services back to the government or the military or folks who serve the military. And it sounds like that's what you did in your business. Um, you provided a service they needed, created your own business to to make it a win-win. How did that ability, that that autodidactic talent, that um, that ability to learn and deliver more than they got, how did that translate into your business being effective? And if you could, if there's a, maybe an example or or a story you could tell to say, hey man, here's a a sticky situation I had where I had to figure something out and I gave way more than uh, they even asked for.
0: Okay, well. If there's one for sure. Yeah, what I would do is uh, you give me, for instance, I had to develop uh, the budget for one of these forward operating locations. That's a complex process. What you have to do is you have to go to every unit, which in the private world they'd call a business unit. You have to sit down with the, person who's responsible for determining what their resource requirements are, ask them questions to help you understand why they need what they need, how it contributes to their mission, and then you have to put it all together in one big model. And you do that uh, in an Excel spreadsheet of some sort so that you can build a big picture model of what the entire uh, Air Force needs in order to pull all the stuff off that you needed to pull off. So I would go around and talk to everybody. Uh, that needed any kind of money for any anything, so that I would understand why they needed it, how much they needed it, when they needed it, and all of these things were part of my learning process. What what happened to me uh, without me realizing it is I learned how businesses operate. Yeah, in that right. So I, I learned uh, the 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 fundamentals of operations, uh, of, of fundamentals of corporate finance.
1: Because I'm sure you had to deal with businesses that you weren't already naturally part of. There were different types of businesses. You had to learn about their business and how it worked to, to even develop that, that information.
0: That's exactly right. So, you know, I had to talk with folks in logistics. I had to talk with folks in operations. I had to talk with folks who were doing uh, uh, manpower. I had to talk with folks who were doing every facet of a, of, of a, of a military operation. I had to talk with people, uh, leadership, as well as the, the resource folks, to find out exactly what they needed and why. And the reason why, is because when I put together these big models, not only did I have to understand everyone's piece, but I had to be prepared to answer questions when folks from the Pentagon would grill me right. on why a particular agency needed uh, $5 million for a particular thing. So I had to know all these things. I had to know it in such a way where I think I, I, I could safely say that I, I had the type of knowledge you would expect a chief financial officer to have Uh. in In. in in, in, in big companies,
1: how did that translate to your company that you ran? How did that skill flow into that
0: well what what happened with that is that because I was so familiar with how money flowed through an organization, how resources uh actually led to operations and vice versa, because I become so familiar with it, I have through experience gained a lot of uh, education that you might you might consider to be the type of things you want entrepreneurs. To have. Got it. The things that I didn't know well, I didn't know a lot about taxation, small business taxation. I didn't know a lot about legal matters. And I was always told that the two things that small business owners need in order to stay out of trouble were lawyers and accountants. So I didn't have the money uh, to go and pay thousands of dollars to lawyers and accountants, but I did have the time uh, to go to the library. <laughs> so what I would do is I would spend a lot of time in the library reading. And the more books I read, they led me to other books and they led me to more questions. And I would just continuously build out my knowledge by plowing through these books. And I would take copious, detailed notes so that I could help myself understand all the pieces of a business operation. And the best part of that experience was writing the business plan. And I ended up uh, writing before starting my first business, the process of writing that business plan forced me to confront questions uh, in areas I had no expertise in, and that forced me to go to the library, and that forced me to read those books as opposed to skim them. Yeah. And once you get to the point where you have all the questions and you're answering all the questions, the business plan is a great learning tool. So that was my that was my graduate education in business. Uh, that process of actually writing that business plan, because I I had to have read at least 60 books in the process.
1: Yeah, that I think um, th- that's one thing that I know you for is reading tremendous amounts of information for comprehension and use, like not just for pleasure, but you got to put it into effect. So you, you know, your business operates effectively. Um, is that something that you feel like you just picked up along the way or, or did you practice the skill of learning or is it just something that is way back for your stepfather that's like that skill you had then just got stronger and stronger over the years what do you think that was
0: i think it was i had a desire from the age of about 13 to use everything i had available to me to achieve my big goals in life get myself out get my family out yeah and to me, that was my brain power. Everybody had lauded me for it while I was a kid. I was always one of the smartest kids. I was always in the gifted and talented programs. I knew that was something that I had that was a little bit, uh, uh, a, a little bit of an edge. So I thought to myself, if if that's what you're good at, learning, uh, learning, teaching yourself, use it. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything such as being lazy intellectually to hold myself back. Right. So I, I always had this burning desire to make sure that I took advantage of opportunities, I took advantage of uh, any talents that I had in order to achieve those major goals that I've had since 13. Reading is just part of it. It's the obvious thing. Uh, because what reading does is allows me to accumulate knowledge without having to ask for permission, without having to get an appointment. If it's in a book and I can sit with it and I can comprehend it, I can get what I need from that book. Yeah. And there are a few things that aren't in books, uh, at least at that time in my life. That's what I thought.
1: Well, now, I mean, and I imagine that's only, you know, a hundred or a thousand folks. You're talking, you're talking 98, 99, 2000, 2001. Now with the internet, social media, Quora, LinkedIn, you know, uh, uh, Linda dot com and who knows how many other resources uh, I'm sure, you know, Ed, at that position in life with at this moment in time, you you would have resources that are like unlimited, I would imagine.
0: Well, I'm a bit of a hoarder of books. Um, the books that I actually keep in physical form at this stage are only my favorites. So in my home library, I only have I have maybe a thousand books, but these are the most important things. Uh, most of the other books that I have are eBooks, and I have many thousands of them, and they cover almost every topic you can imagine. Uh, I am, in 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 every sense of the word, an autodidact, but I am also someone who takes a lot of pleasure in learning more.
1: Let's before we get to that, I think it's good, and I want to explore that. But let's step a little bit through your career from this point if we could to kind of see how you're stepping along the way. Uh, cause the, the, the current version of Ed still had some growing to do at that time. Um, you ran the business. Can you tell me one important trait that it took, um, aside from the learning that you had to be a successful entrepreneur to the point that you could build a business to, to sell to someone at a profit?
0: Yeah. Uh, it was very important for me not to have a safety net. Uh, mm. the, Because I ran that business desperately. yeah. Um, Put in 80, 90 hour work weeks. Didn't have anybody I could call to ask for a $20,000, $30,000 loan. Didn't have anybody who was going to uh, do anything for me for free. So I had to learn accounting. I had to learn corporate finance. I had to learn aspects of the law long before going to law school. Uh, I had to learn contract management. I was constantly uh, switching hats, learning how to... Uh, put new hats on and I was trying to do it in such a way where even though I was doing everything pretty much myself, it appeared to others that there were five or six people running the business. It's not because <laughs> it's not because I misrepresented anything. Right. The quality of the work was so good that most people would have believed that it couldn't have been just me doing it. Right. But I, I was putting in I was putting in 80 90 hour work weeks and I did that because I didn't have a safety net. I had to bet on myself in a big way uh, and I wasn't ready uh, to quit or lose uh, if I hit hard times. so lack of safety net was the very best thing I could have mm. uh, It brought out the best in me it made me desperate and it, it made me uh, it made me work as hard as it as I needed to work in order to achieve what I wanted to achieve. Had I had a safety net, I would have given up on that business really. Oh yeah, there's no way. There's no way I would have gone three or four years, eighty to a hundred hours a week if I had a safety net. Uh, the the safety net though is what really got me through those first two years because I had to pull it off and I had people counting on me. I was counting on myself, and that's 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 always been the way I was. And my mother my mother raised me to be that kind of guy who will who will not quit. And because I was young. I had the energy and I could and I could push myself that far and I had a supportive wife. I was able to do it.
1: What did it feel like when you sold the business?
0: That felt weird because at at that point in my life, I had never had a very large sum of money. Having that kind of because I sold the business for more than seven figures. And I was in my late 20s when this happened to you. And this is. Coming from where I came from, you can imagine me having feelings similar to a professional athlete who just made it into the NFL and NBA. I think that's how it felt in some ways. Yeah. Uh, My wife, who was much wiser about money than I was at that time, she was the one who kept me tethered. Because one of the first things I wanted to go do, I wanted to go buy a brand new Escalade. At this point, these were... These were the best SUVs out. Uh, they were magnificent things. Yeah, they right? look good. And I mean, back in those days, they were, they were brand new. And, you know, if you had an Escalade, you were really somebody. <laughs> okay. So I, I, was, I wanted to go right out and we had a wonderful home, perfectly fine home in a perfectly fine uh, neighborhood in Tucson, Arizona. But I was thinking about going to buy one of the homes in the hills, right? We didn't need it. But I was, I was thinking, well, we got this money now. Let's, let's, let's move on up. I was thinking about the Escalade. I wanted to buy a a, a Corvette, all of these things. And my wife kept me, kept me tethered. So she's always been that person who Mm -hmm. keeps me tethered when it comes to those types of big ideas. And, um, but that's what it felt like, man. It felt like I had hit the jackpot. And, um, after I had calmed down, uh, we started being a little smarter, and we started thinking about what this this type of big chunk of money would enable us to do. yeah, one of the things that would it ultimately enabled me to do was to take a few years off for myself uh, and that the three years that followed my sale of that business would really transform me uh, intellectually. Well,
1: I remember that time being a time whenever you just you were putting out lists of books you were reading you were taking you know, different kinds of philosophical classes at universities. You just see, I remember coming to visit you actually in Tucson and you were in a a running suit. We had, we went and had some lunch and you look like, like the most relaxed cat in the world, man. Like you didn't have a care in this world at that time, you know? Um, But from the inside for you, what you said, it was transformational. How was it transformational to you that that those, that three years?
0: Well, I had been somebody who, read for economic reasons up until about 2003. My education at the Air Force Academy was focused on, you know, the job you'll do when you graduate. Everything was focused on me being an economic man, which is something that W.E.B. Du Bois uh, cautions against um, in in, in some of my favorite of his writings. But I was a purely economic man uh, up until 2003, And something inside me, man, I I just, I didn't feel, feel complete. I felt as though that I had left a lot on the table at the academy. I knew I hadn't gotten a good liberal arts education. I knew it was too focused on engineering, mathematics and management. Uh, And I thought that there was just something missing. Um, So what I started doing is I started looking for guidance on what should people who want to be well read read. And that's when I came upon men like Harold Bloom and started reading about the Western canon, Uh, the great books of the Western world set, purchased that, started plowing through those. And that's when I first began to really get the kind of liberal arts education that I think all people need. And um, why do they need it? Well, it's difficult to understand a lot of things that are right in front of your face uh, until you have read the books that have influenced the civilization you are. A part of
1: what's one example that you would say
0: uh the 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 founder's writings um alexander hamilton's Panda federalist papers uh some of these uh historical documents are documents that unless you are a history student you probably don't come into contact with in college hmm. but reading those things helped me understand what people were thinking uh when they formed the united states but that's that's way late in the development of uh, of western civilization i mean before i was done reading for those three years i mean i was going through eight ten books a week right before i was done with that very that very fast pace of plowing through books and that this was the time between uh quasi retiring and going to law school uh before that i didn't know anything about aristotle i didn't know anything about plato I think I had read something by Plato at the Academy, but I still didn't. I couldn't I couldn't tell you much about it. And I don't know if you remember Remember what we used to talk about in, in, in uh, at the Academy, man. But I was very philosophical. I just didn't have the, the philosophical education. Yeah. Um, but reading the philosophies of dozens of the, of the major thinkers, uh, it, it, it brought in my mind. And this is how I analogize it, because it's so difficult to explain Uh, succinctly, but I'll analogize it like this. Before I started reading in 2003, I was walking around the world with very, very dark shades on. I could still see what was around me, but it wasn't clear. Uh, There were a lot of things that I couldn't really make out. Um, Some things, um, the details just weren't there. Reading uh, for two years straight the Western canon, I'm talking about the the most important books uh, for Western civilization. Um, It was like taking the shades off. Yeah. And it's like walking around, having walked around all your life with some very dark shades, and now you see the full, bright light of day. Hmm. That's how it was to me, because I understood scientific concepts that I didn't understand, mathematical concepts that I didn't understand, philosophical, political,
1: if you were sitting down with somebody with those those things that you've learned, or maybe let's say your children or your grandchildren, what's what's one thing you'd want them to know that you you consistently see people having shades on about? What's one thing you'd want them to know or to to take to to, to uh, learn a lesson about?
0: Distilling it to one thing is nearly impossible. If I had to choose one thing, I would choose. I'd probably choose the ideas in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Okay. And the the concepts there of the golden mean, of of how to live your life in such a way where you can, at the end of it, uh, be as confident as possible that you live the best possible life. I would have to reduce it to the moral and ethical uh, lessons. But even though that might be the most important thing, It's, it's, I mean, I I couldn't, I I couldn't in good conscience tell somebody that's all they need to do. Yeah. And I wouldn't even want to tell people in good conscience that that's the first thing they need to do, Hmm. but it's, it might be the most important thing to do.
1: Okay. Yeah. No, obviously we, we can't go through the whole Western Canada. I was wondering like what the types of things are that you were hitting on. And and obviously you're growing It's hard to encapsulate three years worth of growth into that period of time. Uh, And at the same time you, you came out of that ready to go to law school. Why law school? And what did you intend to do with that?
0: I had a conversation with one of them. So while I was reading these books, I was also taking courses at the University of Arizona. I wasn't taking them for a degree program. I didn't need nor did I want a degree. I wanted to just consume. And I was uh, in the garden of leisure at a university that had some very good uh, philosophers, uh, some of the best in the world. So I took dozens of f- courses in philosophy at the undergraduate and graduate level. I took courses in Latin uh, economics, all the things, linguistics in particular was another big field of study. All the things that I, I was very curious about, I just took a lot of courses and I was taking, you know, seven to nine courses a semester.
1: Wow. And, and for uh, reference, most people would only really take three or four courses, maybe right. five a semester.
0: Right. I was, I just, I, w- I felt, I just wanted to get it all in. I mean, this is what you want students to be like. You want them to be like I was during those years because I was doing it out of pure pleasure. Hmm. Pure pleasure. And I didn't take the easy way out. I wasn't auditing these courses. I was taking these courses for grades. Hmm. So I had, to, I had to write essays, take exams. And, I, and the reason why I was more than happy to do it is because I was doing the work. Right. I was actually doing the work, doing the readings. I didn't just want to you know, show up in class. I was doing the work. So uh, uh, while I was doing that and reading, um, I I had to make a decision. I thought at one time I might go to get a Ph.D. in philosophy. I, like a lot of philosophy students who have consumed as much philosophy as I had consumed at that point, you kind of get lost in it. Hmm. It's very seductive. So I was – I thought that I might make, be able to make some contributions in fields of metaphysics and epistemology, two of the three major areas of philosophy at the, at the scholarly level. And I thought that I could make contributions uh, of the sort that, you know, maybe three, four hundred people in the world would, would care to bother to try to understand. Right. Um, but it was really all arrogance. It was me trying to flaunt my intelligence. Um, the really The ethics was missing. But I had a conversation with one of my philosophy professors, the only black professor uh, teaching at the University of Arizona at the time. And I don't think I've ever told him this, but uh, it was Professor uh, Joseph Tolliver, got his Ph.D. at uh, Ohio State University. He told me a story about his mother, uh, almost disappointingly, asking him why he didn't go to law school and why he went to get a Ph.D. in philosophy instead. And she told him that, you know, this is back in the, the 70s or 80s when he got his degree. Right. She told him that we needed more lawyers, that we needed philosophers. And she was probably right. But when he told me about that, even though he didn't intend for it to influence my decision on what I would do next, it did. Because mm. it, it really brought me out of the clouds. Yeah. It yanked me out of the clouds, man, because I thought to myself, wait a minute. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of work a brother like me needs to do in the community. Yeah. And become a philosopher. I'll, I'll, the community's going to lose me. You know, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be I'll be focusing on writing these esoteric papers. Like I said, that only a few hundred people in the world I understand and fewer will care about. And um, I'll be so consumed with it. I'll just be lost. Yeah. Lost community. And it snapped me out of that. And it brought me back to the the kind of ideas that I had growing up listening to uh, that black nationalist hip hop I listened to in high school. It brought me back to the types of ideas that the brothers I went to, the Air Force Academy and I would talk about. And it brought me back to where my core was. And my core was very different uh, than I would have had to, very different than what it would have needed to be were I to go on to become a a scholar in philosophy.
1: What what type of work in the community do you feel like? What were some of those thoughts? What what type of work did you feel like you, you had to do to complete your, your mission in life?
0: Well, I always um I wanted when I after I graduated from the academy and after I had sold that first business, and this was post uh when I had gotten out of the military, I noticed that a lot of black businesses in the Pima County, Southern Arizona area, they had good stuff. They just didn't have good operations. Yeah. And I wanted to contribute to these businesses, so I, I started doing a lot of work with the local Black Chamber of Commerce, local Urban League, and I started really getting myself involved with the black businesses in the city, in the county. And I started helping dozens of them. Yeah. So I would come in and I would, and I would do things for free that would have cost them many thousands of dollars. Some of them welcomed it, uh, but some of them were very skeptical and suspicious of me, as they should have been. Uh, they didn't know what the angle was, but I, I what I wanted to do is I wanted to strengthen uh, the black-owned business, black-owned businesses in the community, so that they could become even wealthier. Right, and I thought that by doing that, by helping them solve uh, the the wealth issue the best I could, that I could do what I thought was the best I could do for the community to help solve all the problems that are connected to money. Um, so. You know, that's a big part of the reason why I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to, you know, figure out how to use the legal tools at a very sophisticated level uh, to to use you know, use it for business strategic purposes. I plan to apply that knowledge for my own businesses and also continue to contribute to uh, black owned businesses. It's just that something happened at law school that caused me to kind of start focusing on something a little different. But I went into law school wanting to. Developed a legal strategic skill set that I could use and combine with all the other things that I knew to build more businesses for myself and help other black owned business owners in my community uh, strengthen their businesses without charging everybody an arm and a leg.
1: Right? No, that okay. Now that makes sense. And you, you, I know you had some success. We talked about some of the success you had in Arizona in our time. Um, do you have an example of a business that you said, Hey, this, this, this guy, this woman needs some help. Uh, I did something for them and it helped their business grow. Do you remember any, any, any particular ones that stood out to you?
0: I do. There was a financial advisor, uh, in Tucson, his name, I I won't tell you his name, but uh, he was, uh, he was doing okay. He needed some help developing more sophisticated, more persuasive presentations for high wealth individuals in the area in order to keep his doors open. He had the skills and he had the team. He just didn't have the pitch. So he learned about me from others in the, the, black, the, the black chamber of commerce there. And he called me to speak with him one day. He wanted to hire me uh, to help him develop this new presentation. And he really was asking me to do something that was very difficult to do. I didn't realize it. Because I didn't know enough about investing and, you know, the type of work he did to to know how difficult this project would end up being. Mm. But ultimately, uh, all I really needed from him was I needed to understand what his objectives were, what his business objectives were. And when he told me that I went to work, like I always do, teaching myself what I thought I needed to know in order to help him achieve those objectives. So we ended up developing a very, very cool presentation. Uh, where I used at that time the latest advancements in powerPoint technology I right. had things I was doing things in PowerPoint that folks didn't know could be done in powerpoint, <laughs> but it wasn't it wasn't it was it was very aesthetically pleasing and it was always used in a way that would actually push the message right so I developed a, a, a like a thirty minute presentation for him that I helped him uh actually figure out how to narrate over. And he ended up, uh, his business became very, very successful as a result of giving that presentation a couple of times. That's one example. Yeah. And there was another example of uh, of a restaurant that was struggling. They had the best food, but they just couldn't run the business. And the owner, she just was so afraid to give me the reins in terms of helping her uh, understand how to operate these things. She was afraid that I might get in there and learn some things She didn't want anybody to know. Mm. Once I had gained her confidence I, I went in and we fixed a lot of the operations. I developed uh, a customized um, a Customized uh, spreadsheet uh, that was easy for her to use to do her bookkeeping mm. uh, It wasn't as complex as QuickBooks and I also helped them develop a, a point-of-sale interface that really helped him uh, do some things a little more efficiently. So those are the types of things I was doing. Even though I didn't have a computer science background, that didn't matter to me. If it was in a book, I could teach myself how to do it. And that's what I did to help these businesses.
1: That's that's pretty cool, man. Um, you were kind of like, I don't know if you you know, the TV show The Prophet.
0: I do know. I don't watch it. I've watched a couple of episodes, but I'm familiar with
1: it. Well, that's like what you did, except for you did it without taking any. Uh, as, as As far as you've discussed you didn 't take any ownership of the companies. you just came in to help them be more successful
0: that 's right
1: yeah that 's pretty cool man and and then you went to law school and came out ready to be uh, one of the most beloved careers that people have in this country a lawyer you know um, and a, a number of folks who i 've interviewed started their careers in the in the field of law um, and you talked about why you got into it what um, What angle did you see coming out of it? Because pretty much after that, you were more or less running your own businesses as an an attorney, uh, providing legal services. What was your aim, you know, in terms of what you wanted to do being a lawyer?
0: When I started law school, I wanted to focus on business and corporate law so that I could come out the other side uh, being the smart lawyer that all good businesses need. I, I just wanted to make sure there was always a lawyer in the room for all of my businesses. Mm. So that was my objective going in. And you wanted to be that lawyer. I wanted to be that lawyer. And I, and I, I wasn't intimidated by law at all. Uh, there was, uh, the LSAT wasn't intimidating to me. Um, I've always been good with, with logic, always been good with puzzles. Um, I, the school I went to was not the best school I could have gone to. It was the school that I went to because, to be honest, it gave me the most scholarship money. It was, it was very inexpensive, and I didn't feel that I needed the prestige of any law school to do what I wanted to do. I had already been successful in business uh, by most people's accounts and standards, and uh, I didn't think that I needed uh, the prestige of an Ivy League law school nor the bill uh, in order to uh, do what I wanted to do next. So I went to a school that I thought would get a great education. And uh, where I would be able to, you know, do my thing, and and that's what that's what the University of Arizona School of Law was. But I wanted to go there to be a business lawyer. That that was initial initial objective. That changed while I was there, but that's what I went there for.
1: Right. It changed in what way?
0: In my third semester, where you where you are able to first begin to take courses, elective courses. Um, I took. Uh, a four-unit evidence course taught by Thomas Malway, who is still a friend of mine. Um, Tom Malway is quite possibly the best evidence professor who's ever lived. Huh. And he made evidence law so fascinating, and his presentations were so polished that he it's kind of, it just kind of drew me in. And I was compelled to ask him questions after the after the class meetings, and we started talking, and he noticed something when we would have these exchanges in the class because I was what a lot of folks would consider to be a gunner. I talked way too much in law school, uh, but that's how I work through things in my mind through talking them. So, but a lot of folks uh, that's frowned upon in law school. You're supposed to sit back and, and be quiet and not talk unless called upon. I was the complete opposite of it, <laughs> uh, but. We had such fascinating exchanges in the classroom that he noticed I had a talent uh, for explaining my ideas in ways that were easy to grasp. And he asked me if I would be interested in competing for money in a closing argument competition. He said, I think you'll do well. Mm. (laughs) And uh, with that, you know, this guy whom I had grown to admire telling me that that little spark was enough for me. Yeah. So I went and uh, I signed up for this closing argument competition. I had never done anything related to mock trial, never done a closing argument. I had to go read Tom Maui's book in order to figure out what a closing argument was <laughs> and how to and how to and how to actually put one together. Oh, my God. So after I had done that, uh, they give you a, a set of evidence and you're supposed to develop a closing argument around it. I came in in. And I won the competition. And oh, I won wow. all the competitions uh, afterwards. Jeez. And it was just something that I had, I had no idea that this was something I could do well. Right. But the more I learned about law, the more I realized that the most complicated thing that you can do as a lawyer, at least in my opinion, uh, is to be a trial lawyer. Mm. It's a complex thing. It's a, it's a thing that uh, uh, it takes a special kind of person to actually gain pleasure out of it. And I'm one of the one of the few who gains pleasure out of building a case, trying a case, and um, Thomas Malway is the reason why I ended up becoming a trial lawyer, uh, even though I went to law school thinking I was going to do something, in my opinion, much easier.
1: Got it. Got it. And and the path that led you down is ultimately um, to start, you know, your own firm. Um, what do you think? Because A number of lawyers um, I've spoken to, they did their own firm for a little period of time, but ultimately either worked in public law uh, for like the the DA's office or something like that, or ended up working for another private law firm or did something else business wise using their their experience from the law. But you yourself have ran a successful uh, law firm. Um, Talk about that and, and what it took for you to be successful as uh, an attorney managing your own firm?
0: That's an interesting question. And that, that question, the answer to it is probably one of the most revealing things uh, about me. So I graduated from law school in 2010. I'm older than most of my peers. Unlike my peers who are all afraid that they won't be able to get a job. I had no fear. Of not being able to earn money with my law degree, no fear whatsoever. I had summer gigs with law firms, and I had one with a big law firm uh, in Phoenix and one with a small law firm in Tucson. My time at the big law firm helped me understand why I was going to be unable to begin my law law career as an associate at a big law firm. Mm. The reason why is because I was older, number one. I was African-American, number two. And these two things are very important things. There were law firms that wanted me to come work for them, big law firms, but I did not want to work for them. Yeah. I did not want to, to be in that situation. And it's not because I lacked the humility. I I had the humility. I, I wasn't ready, however, to work for a partner as a lackey. Yeah. And um, having run some,
1: your own business successfully, you're like, I'm not I'm not trying to go backwards, basically.
0: It wasn't so much going backwards because I had a lot to learn. And yeah. one of the ways you can learn it is by uh, studying under and working for a partner for three to five years. That's one way to do it. It's the tried and true method. But that's not the only way. And I, and I decided that I didn't have what it would take to be successful as an associate Success, in my opinion, would be being happy with my job. I would not have been happy with my job. I believe I would have excelled at it. right? But I wouldn't have been happy at it, and it would have, it would, that unhappiness would have found its way into my home, and I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that.
1: Yeah,
0: I had no fear about my ability to get clients and no fear about my ability to practice law well, even though I had not spent time in a big law firm as an associate uh, after law school. And because I had no fear of that, uh, I was okay uh, joining a law firm as a partner uh, as my first job after getting barred. So I came to Colorado, and I had some friends I went to law school with. They had started a firm. Uh, They knew about some of the things I could do. They were confident that I could come in and contribute immediately. And so I joined the firm. Uh, There were four of us uh, in my first firm, and I was a 25% partner uh, right out the gate.
1: So pause for a second. I want to catch up on something you said that we slid by that the two things being older, and being African-American were basically um, marks against you for being successful in a law firm. Can you talk about how so?
0: Sure. I knew that I had the tools to overcome the cultural pressure of being African-American in a predominantly white law firm. The The culture of the culture of white shoe law firms is a very different culture and it's something that's difficult for um, young black men and women to get ready for. I understood the culture, but only because I was older. That didn't mean that I wanted to uh, subject myself to it. And let what me about what the I culture
1: mean. was difficult?
0: So uh, these firms are run by a couple of people who are considered the rainmakers. They are the folks, the generals. Um, they bring in all of the business and everybody, in essence, kiss their butt. Yeah. Um, they have to. They have to do what these rainmakers say do, because uh, these rainmakers are the reasons why the, the the lights come on and everybody's making money. But the rainmakers <clears throat> also um, <laughs> they they remind you who where you where you are in the pecking order. Right. And um, they do it in subtle ways and not so subtle ways. I would have had to have worked a little bit more than I would have liked to in order to make sure that I was always getting the high quality work that you need to get to be successful in a big law firm. I would have had to kiss the asses of a few per- people that I, I wasn't I didn't think I was ready to kiss their asses. Hmm. And I knew that I was going to have to kiss their asses to be successful in that firm because I would have to be their buddies in order to get the work. right. But I also knew that they would have the power to destroy my career if at any point in time they be, we got at odds. And I knew at the same time that there could come a time where somebody might say something in a meeting that would be offensive to me.
1: And, and the Long and Beach, I, the LBC, wasn't all the way out of you yet, is what you're trying to say.
0: It wasn't the Long Beach, man. It was <laughs> it, Actually, it was the integrity. Okay. Because what happens when black people... Uh, black professionals and big law firms, when they stay quiet, when they know they're supposed to talk, they compromise their integrity.
1: Mm. In what Every way? Time,
0: yeah. So here's the thing. You know, you got you got you got firms where you got folks who have who have been privileged all their lives. They're not they're not culturally competent. And to them, uh, they'll say things and I and I'll, I can't provide any uh any concrete examples right now. I understand I, it's not my head, but they'll say things that are. To people who know better and who are culturally competent, offensive, and racist. And they'll say it in small meetings where there's only five or ten people. You're the only black person there. Well, when you're silent, you are training them. You're training them to believe that what they just said is okay. Hmm. And you're not doing what you need to do to teach them how to be culturally competent. Right. So when you stay silent, it's a compromising of your integrity because yeah. you know you're supposed to say something, but you trade you trade your integrity for the paycheck. Mm. You trade the integrity for the opportunity to advance your career, to prevent somebody from getting pissed off, to prevent somebody from feeling uncomfortable around you. And God knows, being the only black associate, you can't afford anybody to be uncomfortable uh, around you in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah. So I thought, I thought through those scenarios because I had seen some things during the summer that I thought were borderline racist. And I stepped to the partners when they did it, but I stepped to them in private. It wasn't in in front of everybody because I thought that was the best way to deal with it. And of course, every time I did, they would tell me, oh, that's not what I meant. I'm glad you came and talked to me about it. But I could envision scenarios where it would be much worse and they would be counting on me to either shut up if it was okay or say something if it wasn't. But what they wouldn't be able to empathize with is all the things that I had to calculate before I decided whether or not to open my mouth. Right. So I decided that, man, you know, that kind of environment, I'm that I'm that guy who is going to embarrass a Rainmaker. Yeah. Right? And he's now gonna get over it. And it's gonna and it's gonna be something that's gonna he's gonna he's gonna get back at me. He's gonna play a long game. Right. He's gonna he's gonna work, he's gonna work to do something to get back at me over time. And I was like, you know what? There's enough politics going on to these things. On top of that, they don't pay enough at $150,000 or something around there. I thought that that was crazy that anybody would work that hard for that amount of money. I, I thought to myself, I could figure out how to make more than that without being an associate. So, um, so yeah, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be successful in that kind of environment because I knew I wouldn't be able to sit there and shut up uh, when somebody did something that, that required them to get a good check. It.
1: Oh, that makes sense. That makes that makes a lot of sense, and and that's what drove you to be a 25% partner in Fisher Hopkins, uh, Nandan, and Pangalo. So I want to make sure I'm pronouncing those correctly.
0: Yeah, you pronounced those right. Yeah, so these guys were, we were a diverse group. You know, Paul Fisher, who runs one of the most successful plaintiff's attorneys uh, firms in Denver, Colorado now. uh, Paul and I had a lot of similar backgrounds in in the sense that we had both run very successful uh, businesses that we, we in essence, bootstrapped. Um, Raghu Nandan, he had a lot of experience in banking. And then the older partner, Michael Pangalos, he had a lot more experience than the other three of us in just the practice of law. Okay. Uh, but our business acumen is what really convinced us that we could figure out how to be competitive as uh, plaintiffs' attorneys. And we were competitive, uh, we, we were a very profitable firm early. I just did not have the intellectual stimulation uh, that I was looking for with law and we weren't on the path to go to trial very much because most plaintiff's cases, most cases for every kind of law, you know, they settle. right? And I, I that's not the kind of lawyer I, I signed up to be. I wanted to be a lawyer who would try high stakes cases. And I didn't think I was going to get there, uh, often enough, uh, doing what we were doing. We were settling all these cases, making great money, but not doing the kind of law I wanted to do. So I, I decided to branch out, um, after about a year working with them, we're still all good friends. At least I am with Paul and Ragu. But, um, but I, the, thing, the stuff I'm doing now is more in line with my intellectual curiosities and what I want to do as a lawyer.
1: Did you choose the type of law you did because of the intellectual stimulation mm-hmm. or uh, for some other reason?
0: Well, there were a couple of reasons why I ended up being... what I, what, I do three things. I practice uh, defamation law. Very few attorneys focus their practice on it. I'm one of them. I practice privacy law, and I practice computer crime law. So, and that is, in my opinion, a species of privacy law. These are called uh, dignitary torts. Right. This is, this is what they would be called in law school, dignitary torts. I always thought that it would be very difficult to persuade jurors to give people money for non-economic damages. And there was a competition at the University of Arizona by a very prominent lawyer named Richard Grand. He would fund this competition. He would pay the winners money. The competition was to develop closing arguments that would focus on persuading people to pay non-economic damages. That was what he was known for.
1: What is that? Uh, So can you explain what that means?
0: Yeah. uh, So you got economic damages uh, such as lost profits, uh, medical bills. These are the things that very few jurors ever have difficulty uh, granting to plaintiffs when they have been convinced that defendants have done them wrong. So if you got an invoice or a bill for it, and you paid money out of your pocket for it, or there's a a clear bill that resulted from what happened, that's economic or special damages. All jurors give you those. Right. That's just one kind of economic damages. There are other more speculative kinds, but that's the most common concept non-economic damages or damages for the emotional distress that someone suffers through after having been physically injured, after having their reputation destroyed. Um, Those are the types of things that are more difficult uh, to get people to, to understand what that's worth. Right. But that's what, that's that hard, that hard type of law explaining why someone is entitled to so much in non-economic damages. That's what I wanted to do.
1: And you, in this competition, was to try to see who could get juries to to award those type of damages.
0: That's right. Okay. That's right. And it, you got to you got to really connect. You got to really connect with something that everybody can agree with, in order for you to be able to c- persuade jurors to give someone large sums of money for non-economic damages. Because you got to understand something. Jurors, by far and large, consist of people who don't have a lot of money. You know, right. they're not millionaires. Everybody who who sits on these juries, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand—that's a lot of money. Uh, you ask, you come and ask them for enough money f- for them to buy a house for non-economic damages. You're going to have to have a pretty good explanation. Right. Uh, so, to me, the the highest form of art, in other words, the 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 best trial lawyers are the ones who can help jurors understand why someone who may be physically okay nonetheless deserves hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And there are times when that is the case, but you have to be a special kind of trial lawyer in order to help jurors, reasonable people understand when those times are here. So that's the kind of stuff I wanted to do, and that's why I wanted to do dignitary torts, because those torts are by and large, uh, when you when you sue somebody, you're, you're primarily asking for non-economic damages.
1: Did you? So was this were this competition with real cases, or did he was this some made up thing?
0: Well, with Richard Grant, he would uh, he would give us facts from cases he had tried, um, and his 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 actual. There were two major uh, closing argument competitions at the University of Arizona. One was uh, an argument competition that the. Um, Arizona members of the uh, American College of Trial Lawyers would judge and there would be, you know, dozens of them would come to judge these competitions. Right. University of Arizona will compete against Arizona State University and to this day, every November, they have this competition and all the best trial lawyers in the state come out for it. It's a very big event. Uh, but then there's the Richard Grand Closing Argument Competition which is just for University of Arizona students because he's an alumni, or alumnus. And his competition focused on damages he was he, i think he was one of the first if not the first attorney in uh in tucson arizona to get a million dollar verdict um he founded a very uh important plaintiff's organization called the inner circle uh mm-hmm. and this is where you know plaintiff's attorneys who have gotten multi-million dollar verdicts the best in their in their uh states are members of his uh, of his inner circle mm-hmm. but he 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 is known for helping jurors understand why someone is entitled to Millions of dollars of non-economic damages.
1: And this is what this experience led into what you're doing, your current firm, like your motivation or your maybe the seed for the things you wanted to do with your the firm that you started on your own.
0: Yeah. So that's one of the reasons Uh, I wanted to be able to uh, develop my abilities to help people understand when large sums of money for non-economic damages are justified. Because it's, you have to be a good lawyer to do it, and too many lawyers can't do it well, which means that plaintiffs who deserve the money oftentimes end up leaving the courthouse with much less than they should get. Yeah, And it's just because the lawyers, they don't invest enough time in understanding how to communicate, how to explain non-economic damage.
1: So t- two, two things. One is the, the skills you say that it takes. One is this ability to connect with the jury. Um, and explain what else do you think is it makes you good at it to have won all those competitions as well as I'm sure do well in your firm as much as you want to talk about that um, and, and any claims you're able to to, to successfully explain and, and get for your clients. Um, so maybe actually first answer that question. What does it take to do that? Uh, and what, what skills do you think you employ well to make that happen?
0: You have to be sincere. You have to you have to believe in the in the in the story you're telling. You have to believe in your your client's case, because uh, jurors can smell a liar. Um, I think my life experiences of having seen murders, having seen some of the the harshest parts of life, um, it helps me it helps me persuade people that I'm being sincere. I haven't been coddled, and I'm not I'm not trying to sell you something. Uh, I'm not trying to sell you snake oil and it it comes through when I talk to jurors but I also am a an above average public speaker. So I can I have a more presence than the average attorney has. I'm very comfortable talking to jurors from all walks of life um cuz I have been in every social class except for the aristocracy. Right. And um <laughs> I read I've read enough books, man, where I've read about the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of other people. So I can, I have the ability to empathize with a wide range of people. Got it. So uh, all those things come together uh, with, um, with just thinking it through, thinking it through what is the right thing to say uh, to a group of individuals who are reasonable about a particular case, a particular person, what's the right thing to say. And if, if you have enough wisdom and you work hard at it, you can figure out what the right thing to say and when to say. And that's what I strive to do. It's very hard. It's very hard to do, but if you do it well, it doesn't look hard while you're doing it.
1: What do you, um, if you, you know, I don't want to put all your business in the street, so talk about it if you want to, but have you been able to successfully get some big verdicts, uh, non-economic damage verdicts, and, um, and, and what did that look like when you were successful at it?
0: Yes, I have. Uh, I'll give you an example. I tried a case in a very conservative county in Colorado, Douglas County. And this case involved um, a police officer and his wife. This woman had accused them of feeding their baby a margarita, an alcoholic drink, while they were out at a restaurant in one of the local malls hmm well they weren't feeding the baby margarita what they were feeding the baby was water but the lady who had accused him of this thought she saw them giving something to the baby out of a margarita glass but what she failed to tell the police is that she had consumed quite a bit of alcohol that night and she might not have been the best most credible uh, witness to this type of event well we ended up persuading the jury that not only was it water so what she said about my client was false but that she was quite reckless in making the accusation because she went on to speak with two local news organizations it became a big news story
1: wow
0: uh had a police officer giving his daughter margarita and he was he was he was made fun of at on the job but he's a tough guy so you know he he did uh he didn't let anybody know how much it affected him, but people were calling his baby, you know, drunk baby, making these kinds of jokes. Um, but it was very difficult for his wife and he to get through it. But uh, at the trial, <clears throat> we made the strategic decision not to ask for any economic damages. We didn't ask for any of the money they spent on counseling. We didn't ask for for any of the money they spent on any type of cost, we asked for only non-economic damages, and we ended up getting a six-figure verdict wow. uh, in a very conservative county, uh, which a lot of folks didn't think was possible.
1: And by conservative, you mean they don't give away money to anybody?
0: They don't give away much money at all. These folks are tough folks. These are this this county is filled with a bunch of military uh, veterans, um, filled with a bunch of you know folks who police officers. They they just don't give up money. Yeah, and um, we were able to convince them to give up a a six figure verdict in spite of their conservative biases, uh, because we had home when that closing argument when it came time to give that closing argument, that's when the attorney on the other side realized that he had made a big mistake by letting this go to trial, Hmm. and that's when most attorneys realize that they had made a big mistake is when I begin my closing argument. Because these, these closing arguments that I put together, um, I, I, I designed these things to, to achieve certain goals. And the amount of work that I put into them, you, you, can't really, you can't really grasp it when you see the closing argument because they just come off as if it's just kind of an easygoing conversation. But these conversations, these, these closing arguments are designed to, to really, really get the job done. When I started giving the closing argument, uh, I could see the attorney for the other side realizing that he knew uh, the result was not going to be favorable. All
1: right. So to go inside of the story, if I can, I just I'm curious, you know, you see on TV, there's a situation where it's like that. And then there's this this dramatic point where the other attorney's like, hey, man, you know, we could settle if you want to. Um, and then you're like, "Nah, you know, let's go to the jury and see what happens with it. Um, uh, did, did, Does that kind of thing happen in real life? Did it happen there? And did you did you? Uh, turn him down or, or, or did that how did that part of it go
0: it happens in real life it's never happened with me and it's largely because i haven't had enough trials uh for the attorneys on the other side to be as fearful of my closing arguments as they probably should be but on top of that my competition has gotten better with every case because uh, the word has gotten out that i'm that i'm good at what i do right and because the competition has gotten better, the arrogance of the attorneys on the other side has increased. <laughs> okay. Thus, it's serious. I mean, some of, some of these guys are justifiably confident. All yeah. of them are. Okay. So so they they think to themselves that you know you can't beat me uh, at trial. You're not going to get me. Uh, and I think a lot of trial lawyers, you need that uh, in order to do your job. I don't I don't need that. Humility is a big part of what makes me effective. But um, but the defense attorneys. Um, it's hard for them to 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 imagine that a guy like me, uh, who doesn't come from a big firm, can put a whooping on. <laughs> and so, you do, so, yeah, I do. So, but the thing is, is that you know, if I if I continue to do this for another decade or so, there'll be big verdicts, uh, and and you know, the word the word will get out, and folks will start. Uh, they won't let me give as many closing arguments, but at this point, I'm I'm more than happy uh, when somebody makes the mistake of allowing me to talk to a jury, right.
1: So uh, let me ask this. Um, Have you in your law career, uh, you mentioned some of it at what could potentially happen at a big law firm. But in your career on your own practice, have you had to deal with any kind of bias um, or or anything like that in the practice of law?
0: Of course I have a. I deal. I'm in a profession where the most powerful people in my profession are white men. And no one is really there to check them. No one's there to force them to be culturally competent. No one's there to, to really, you know, force them to act right. Um, I can think of three occasions where judges have disrespected me uh, in ways that uh, I, I couldn't tell whether or not they did it because I was a black man or if that's just the way that they they treat all lawyers, or if it was because I was a plaintiffs lawyer, I really couldn't tell. I just know how it made me feel. Right. Um, what
1: and, does that disrespect uh, look like if you if you could share?
0: Sure. So on one occasion, I was in Denver, uh, District Court. Um, there was a there was a a judge there. He was a relatively new judge, but he had a, a long history as a litigator, commercial litigator. Uh, We were at a hearing and the defense attorney and I uh, were talking with the judge about a couple of civil procedural matters. The defense attorney and the judge were debating an issue related to whether I had to give a certain kind of notice for uh, a video deposition that I took and I didn't have a stenographer there. The judge clearly had not read the rule, which said it was perfectly fine for me to just do video as opposed to uh, stenographer. So the judge and the defense attorney were talking about it. I knew the answer. I wanted to refer the judge to the statute so that we didn't have to waste more time uh, discussing it. And so I I professionally uh, interrupted uh, the judge. And I attempted to cite the statute Right. rather than allowing me to do that. The judge unnecessarily raised his voice and he says something along the lines, Mr. Hopkins, wait until it's your turn. Now, that was the first time a judge had ever did anything like that to me. And, and there are times when that is certainly warranted. But I hadn't been interrupting. I hadn't done anything that would cause a judge to raise his voice to me that way. It was almost as if this guy had something pent up in him and he just wanted to let it out. Right. And uh and I sat there and I you know and I and I and I and I and I, and I, I just sat there and I I didn't you know I didn't uh, go off on the judge of course you can't there's a very there's a very clear uh power structure in a courtroom. And I didn't want to do anything that would affect my client. Right. Uh, if it weren't for my client uh I would have checked that judge. So um the judge makes these types of uh, statements, and then after he's done raising his voice, and then he allows me to speak, I explain to him what I was going to say. Calmly, I explain it to him. And he realizes that he and the other attorney were wrong. They had just wasted a lot of time because the judge didn't know the rule, but he didn't apologize hmm. for raising his voice. So that was one time I felt disrespected, but I let that go. Uh, there was another time when I was in another County, uh, this was a more conservative County. And this judge raised his voice to me, uh, because one of my associates was going to give the arguments for the hearing. Uh, when you begin a hearing, the attorneys representing a party are supposed to announce themselves and tell the judge whom they represent, which I did. I wanted to make a few brief comments and then allow my associate to take over, um, the judge asked me who was going to be giving the the arguments, and I told him that my associate would be giving it. He said, well, then you need to sit down and let her talk. Mm. And I was like, wow, <laughs> right? I mean, there's there's this way. There's some judges who get that you just need to be professional with attorneys. I don't care that you, you're the judge unless an attorney has repeated bad behavior causing you to need to check the attorney. Uh, you should not speak to an attorney like that. Just like officers in the military right. you should never speak to fellow officers that way. I consider myself just like judges to be officers of the court and I expect them to have the same level of respect for me as I do for them. And when it doesn't happen, it makes me question why they felt they had the leeway to talk with me. But it's happened a couple of times. uh, And then you have a couple of attorneys who have been very disrespectful to me. uh, But uh, that's easier to deal with. I see that more of a sign of weakness when an attorney has to be disrespectful and uh, puff his chest out, That that's when I know I'm making progress.
1: How do you deal with it? Like, how do you overcome
0: it? I beat him.
1: <laughs> that's easy enough.
0: Yeah, for the, for the most part, the way I overcome those types of shenanigans is I just, I just get the result that I want. The judge is a little bit more difficult. On one occasion, there was one judge who was being outwardly disrespectful to me by sitting on my case and not giving me a ruling, um, I actually talked with one of his peers, uh, who had recently left the bench, and she explained to me that this guy had been having all kinds of problems, and he had been, you know, put on some type of uh, some type of educational program. So, i've I've had I've had situations where I've had to talk with other people, sometimes some judges who are my friends, but I've never asked anybody to intervene right. or go and talk to a judge on my behalf. In my opinion. Uh, If you're a black attorney, uh, you need to be capable of accepting disrespect. Um, You shouldn't you shouldn't stand for it if you don't have to. But if it's if it's if there's any doubt as to whether or not he's disrespecting you because you're black or he's disrespecting you for some other reason, you give him the benefit of the doubt. But if it's a repeat offender, the guy is actually taking your cases or or doing something else that's just repeated. Uh, that's when you need to take measures to put them in check. I haven't come across that yet. It's been much more subtle, subtle and aversive.
1: Got it. Um, man, it's, uh, it's interesting. I like the, the way you approach things is so analytical and, um, and still it persists from way back, uh, in high school and, and, and thereabouts to now you just, It's so analytical and matter of fact, I know it probably doesn't come as well packaged in the process as it sounds like it does, but, but the result is still as effective. Um, Let me ask you this because I'm sure you've had time to think about it. If you could change things in the environment that you work in, in the law to make it easier for the next guy coming, first of all, would you change it? uh, Change anything? And second of all, if so, how would you change things to make it easier uh, with some of the issues we've just been talking about.
0: I don't want the law to become intellectually easier for anybody. It's so just state complex.
1: N- not the law, but yeah. those experiences that people may have of the disrespect and stuff like that.
0: Right. I, I think that the law should be discomforting because I think that people who can't tolerate uh, that kind of abuse probably shouldn't practice law because you got to be tough. Yeah. But if I could make it what I would like to do is I'd like to make it Less less antagonistic towards non-white males. Mm. I'd like for there to be less of a clear power uh, supremacy uh, by white males. And it's not because I think white males are incapable of of carrying out justice. They are more than capable. Some of the best lawyers uh, that have ever lived, of course, have been white males, and the percentages favor that. Favor that conclusion. Right. Uh, almost all of them, for a long period of time, were white males. Almost all of them. Unfortunately, it's still the case that almost all of the ones in powerful positions are white males. And too few of them have cultural competence. Too few of them have worked to be uh, empathetic. And too few of them give a damn about what uh, non white males think because uh, the institution doesn't really require them to give much of a damn. Uh, the corporations that hire these uh these law firms they don 't require them in many cases to give as much of a damn as they should so if I could change anything if I wanted a silver bullet um, i 'd have to be a multi billionaire probably to do it because I would start with uh doing something that would cause large corporations that pay large law firms and ultimately uh, you know help people become judges. I would have those large corporations force law firms to have more uh, minorities at the partnership ranks, yeah. a larger percentage of minorities than they do now. Force them to have many more women uh, in leadership uh, uh, leadership levels at law firms, uh, and to just decrease the number of white males. Not because, like I said, that they, they they're doing a bad, bad job uh, at the law; it's because they're doing a bad job of being culturally competent.
1: Yeah. Can you, um, man, I want to dig into that, but you know what? I'm going to just move to another question because there's just, that's such a deep point. Um, Well, I will ask this. One thing is can you tell me one impact of that lack of cultural competence? How does it like, what's the negative impact of the, of it being missing?
0: Yeah. Um, Folks who would otherwise have long careers in big law firms where, you know, lawyers make the most money and accumulate the most power, um, they leave it. Um, they decide, you know, they have, there's a lot of talented, uh, African American attorneys who leave the law cause they just don't want to put up with it. And it's unfortunate because it's very difficult for a family to, for a black family to make a black lawyer that a lot of folks don't really put a lot of thought into what a, a family has to do to create a black lawyer. That's a lot of folks, lots of generations putting in a lot of work, a lot of nurturing, a lot of investments. And then you get to these big law firms and it is so discomforting. You think to yourself, well, I can put up with this for, you know, 250 half a million dollars and some of the bigger firms million dollars a year, or I can go get a job where I don't have to put up for this for 150, 200,000 and people just leave the law. Yeah, Some of the most talented folks who could become uh, folks who could be competitive for federal judge positions, could be com- competitive for uh, state appellate court positions, could be com- com- competitive for partnerships at large loft. They just say, you know what? Screw this. Yeah, That's one of the biggest things that I think is uh, th- that happens. Uh, very talented people who could make it because of the, the cultural discomfort. They just decide, well, uh, it's just not worth it. I don't want to live my life uh, trying to teach you how to be culturally competent. I don't want to live my life uh, always wondering if today's the day I'm going to have to put you in check because you said something you weren't supposed to say. Um, I'd rather just, you know, be a little happier and just kind of separate myself from this culturally incompetent institution that is the white shoe law firm.
1: And it seems like if they're not judges, if they're not in those powerful law positions or other other pathways they might have otherwise achieved, there's a lot of people they could they could help from those positions of power
0: that they wouldn't otherwise be able to help. That's true. Well, judges are not the most powerful attorneys. The most powerful attorneys are the most, the, the, the rainmakers at the, at the top 100, top 200 law firms. Those are the most powerful attorneys. And those attorneys don't become the most powerful attorneys because they're the best at what they do. That's not, that's not, I mean, you got to be very good at what you do. Don't get me wrong, but it's not because you're the smartest person. It's because you have the best relationships. Yeah. And you have the best relationships with the wealthiest institutions, corporations, and people. And the wealthiest institutions, corporations, and people are white-led. So it's not easy for, it's not impossible, but you got to be sophisticated. You got to have a sophisticated cultural capital, social capital game to become a an African American partner, rainmaker at a top one hundred, top two hundred firm. Their brothers and sisters are doing it, but. Folks don't understand how good their social capital game is. Yeah. That is what got them there. It's not, it's not because they're, they're the smartest. Their social capital game is on point, and um, that's how they make it, and they got to know the folks with the money in order to make it, and they got to always constantly kiss ass. Mm. Uh, you always, you're always tied to the wealthy people who put you there, and that's one, o- that's one other thing about that kind of law firm uh, environment that 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 doesn't rest easy with me knowing that um, if I were a partner at a big law firm that my fate would be tied to uh, a couple of uh, folks who who run the major institutions I represent that my fate would be uh, tied to their decision as to whether or not I get to continue to get their business uh, that doesn't sit well with me I don't like letting people have that much control over my fate.
1: Um, and when you say social capital and your social capital game by that, you mean the ability to navigate these relationships, to leverage them, to get in the position that you want to get into?
0: I mean, the, the ability to bring in the business, which means that here's the thing. Um, major corporations. They give business to law firms based upon law firm prestige and based upon the relationships with the attorneys. Those are the two major driving forces. The relationship part is you got to know somebody uh, who makes a decision on who gets the – like general counsel sometimes, but more often it is uh, one of the the major business decision makers who decides who gets the millions and millions of dollars of business from a major corporation. Now, to be a rainmaker in a big law firm, you got to know those people. If you didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or some of the other uh, prestigious institutions where a lot of Fortune 500 leaders went, um, you're going to have to figure out how – to build those relationships. Now, there's a lot of ways to do it, but it's, it's difficult to do, nonetheless. Yeah. No, and, that's um, good.
1: i oh, sorry, that's, go ahead. That's
0: what you gotta do. You gotta figure out how to be, get tight with the folks who make the money decisions, or else you're not gonna be a rainmaker, and if you're not a rainmaker, your fate is gonna be tied to a rainmaker. You're right. not gonna be calling the shots. You're gonna be working for the person calling the shots, and you always have to be concerned about whether or not that person wants you to stay on the team. Mm.
1: So for you, um, a couple last questions, who have been some important mentors in your life and in, uh, in your career?
0: I, 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 this is, this is, uh, this is going to be a little bit unusual because my, my two best mentors, other than my family members, uh, were people I met after I had uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy. One, uh, was Freddie McSears, Freddie McSears Started off as an enlisted member of the Air Force, got his education, became an officer, retired after about 30 years in the military as a lieutenant colonel, worked at the Pentagon, um, knows everybody. Now, Freddie, Freddie wasn't the smartest guy in the room ever, but Freddie was the wisest guy in the room always. Mm. And what Freddie taught me is that wisdom trumps smarts. Hmm. We spent a lot of time together when I was in mountain Home he became my 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 family away from home, and he helped me get over myself he helped me uh deal with my my arrogance uh he helped me understand how to be a little bit more self aware uh he helped me understand how to be a little bit more empathetic with folks who uh maybe didn't catch on the things as fast as I caught on yeah, so he taught me how to you know slow things down. And to be respectful of, of people's capabilities uh, and their intentions instead of always trying to prove that I'm the smartest guy. Right. Uh, I, I really will always be grateful for Freddie for that because he, he he was a wonderful mentor in that regard. And I really needed him at the time uh, when, when he and I were at Mountain Home together. He needed I needed to learn those lessons. Um, other than other than Freddie, uh, my next best mentor, I'm going to say, is my wife, mm. And it's it's kind of it's kind of abnormal, man. But, but my wife, she has done more to teach me how to how to be wise, how to be patient, uh, than any other person um, any other person uh, that I that I came up with other than my mother. So so my, my, my wife, even though you know she's not a lawyer, uh, she is someone who has very strong ability to intuit things. She has a great ability to figure out someone's character. And um, she has helped me develop my abilities to do that, to figure out if someone has good intentions uh, or if someone is is, is is trying to cause me some harm. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that my uh, Freddie and my wife are my two best mentors since uh, graduating from the Air Force Academy.
1: Your wife sounds like mine, man. Um, I, I would count my wife among one of my best mentors for the same reasons. It's funny. We were just talking about we were talking the other night about someone who an old church friend uh, talked about was trying to get in a relationship with a friend of ours and um, ended up going bad. This guy ended up, you know, not being a good guy. And but in the middle of the story, my, my wife was like, I don't like that guy. This is always an issue with him. Some someone right about him. And then, you know, we heard the end of the story. It turned out he it turned out to not to be a good guy. And I was like, did you ever talk to him or deal? To? She's like, "Nope, I just watched him and I saw. And, I, you know, and I was like, she really knows how to get people's character, like you said. And I'm learning a lot uh, from her in that way. So I can totally it's not strange to me at all, man, that that type of a mentor. Now, well, Ed, my, oh, go ahead. my wife
0: has the almost supernatural ability to to figure out whether someone is is a bad person. man. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. She is like 100% correct. So, so you know, if I, want, if I want to figure out whether or not I want to start building a relationship with someone I recently met, the best thing I can do is, you know, have them meet my wife. Mm. And my wife, she doesn't have to talk a lot or ask them a lot of questions. She gets a vibe. Yeah. And every time she has gotten a vibe and she felt the person was negative, she's been right every time. Mm. Yeah. So, so I don't know what that is. I don't know how, how she does it, but I can, I, I do know that I trust her ability to do it. And, uh, anybody who ever wants to do any type of real big business with me, man, at some point in time, they're going to have to pass the test of getting past my wife. If my wife wants <laughs> you then we could do business. She doesn't like you. Sorry. Something's going to happen. <laughs> gonna
1: uh, it. Hey, it's supernatural, man. I, th- I think it is supernatural and a gift from God. So we're blessed both i think of us to have it um and you read thousands of books ed um and so if you if you could you know and and maybe i remember you used to have some book lists online i don't know if you still do but um if you could distill it down i always ask for three books that you'd give as a gift to people um if you were to do that to narrow down all the books you've read in that what what are three books you think you'd give as a gift
0: so you know how hard this is for, for i do i do the, i i tell you what though. um There's a book that I recommend frequently, not because I think it's one of the best books ever written, but it's because young men who want to figure out whether or not they should follow their ambitions and try to get in the games that you have to get in to make a lot of money, get power and prestige. I always advise them to read The Power Broker uh, by Robert Carol, and that's an autobiography, not autobiography, but biography of Robert Moses. Uh, It's a very thick book, but I think it's probably the best book to help you understand how a big city works and the power games that are played in it. Because if you want to be a powerful person, someone who has a lot of money, influences local politics or regional politics, um, you need to understand some things about how that sausage is made. And that book is probably the best single book to figure out whether or not you got what it takes. Most men think they do, and almost all of them are wrong.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: the other book that I think, um, if you just wiser, you want to get wiser and you want to figure out uh, some of the most important lessons of life, um, there is a two volume collection of Leo Tolstoy's shorter fiction published by Everyman Library. I recommend that anybody who just wants to work on getting wiser pick that up. Uh, Leo Tolstoy is my favorite author, uh, by far—not even close second. Uh, Shakespeare doesn't even compete, in my opinion, with Leo Tolstoy, and Shakespeare is my second favorite. But Leo Tolstoy's shorter fiction is his best stuff. Now I've read War and Peace and Anna Karenina, but his shorter fiction is where the gems are. Uh, and the collection I just told you about—it contains a novella called Haji Murad, which I think is the best novella ever written. It also contains the best short story ever written, uh, which is How Much Land Does a Man Need? Hmm. And I think that if you read that that story, How Much Land Does a Man Need?, uh, you'll get the gist of how wise Tolstoy was and how artful of a storyteller he was. Um, The other book um, that I would recommend that people read um, would probably be uh, Michelle Montaigne's essays. Michel Montaigne was the most honest, introspective essayist ever. And he laid his soul out uh, in his essays. And he wrote essays on almost every topic that you can imagine he could conceive of uh, at the time he was alive. But because of his honesty and his genius and all of his reading, uh, it's an enriching experience to go through his essays. So, if those were the only three that I would give to a man under under the age of fifty, the, uh, you know that would be those would be the books I would recommend to brothers under uh, men uh, under the age of fifty.
1: Now, you um, you talk a lot about your love of learning. Is that still something that's the case for you? And 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 wrap into that question, the answer around something I thought about when the last time I had a discussion with you about the Western canon is um, I watched a a Ted talk. I'll I'll find the name of it and link it in the show notes. But it was a woman who was from somewhere in, I think she was from like Eastern Central Africa. And she talked about how Western education being the basis for learning in sub-Saharan Africa has mentally and psychologically subjugated sub-Saharan Africans in ways that haven't happened, say in Asia or the Middle East, um, And so what I wondered when I thought about what we talked about and and heard her TED talk was, is there a way in which we're elevating the Western canon? Do you feel like the Western canon is elevated above, say, Eastern literature or history or or some sub-Saharan African? Because she was pushing for like the learning and knowledge from African culture being the basis of learning. Or not that one plus one is not going to equal three. It's just that their wisdom that we have from other societies that can help build knowledge that we're leaving up to things like the Western canon. So your love of learning or other cultures have a place in that canon, so to speak. What are your thoughts there?
0: She's absolutely right. Um, I remember reading a book many, many years ago, Urugu. I I think that's the name of it. I can get you the, I don't have it in front of me, but um, I can email you the book but the author of that book makes similar arguments but she uh pulls no punches. She's not a fan of western civilization. I do see some of the negatives of western civilization's canon. Uh it does subjugate uh uh the eastern philosophies um it it, it almost uh It almost disrespects Africa. Mm. Um, Everything coming out of Africa has less weight and less importance. Um, But I read all of the books I read knowing those things were the case. Yeah. And I still felt it was important to plow through the Western canon knowing that it attempted to place itself above other canons because it is such a part of the culture I am in. Right. And I want to be able to navigate the culture I am in. I want to understand it fully. I want to understand the most beautiful parts of it and the worst parts of it. Uh, But I felt as though in order to understand the best of it, I needed to understand the Western canon. To understand the language we use, I needed to read through the Western canon. Now, that said, I think it's also important to read through other canons. So there are books, especially religious texts, uh, that you must read, uh, in addition to the Western canon, right. in order to, uh, you know, you need to read the Koran. Everybody has to read that. One of the most beautiful, you know, if you perceive it as a religious text, uh, fine. Uh, it's beautiful looking at it that way. If you perceive it as a work of poetry, it's it's beautiful that way. But you need to read it to understand the world you're in. Uh, it's not going to help you understand Western civilization very much. But it's going to help you understand the world you're in uh so that's just one example yeah. uh, of books that you that you need to read but but yeah I, I see that
1: and, and you're, um, you're, what about generally your the pleasure you have for learning you started to talk about that in your three year um uh quasi retirement that you had w- What about the pleasure of learning has stuck with you from that period um or or did you like gain from that period
0: during that period when I was reading so much. I fell into, fell into a, a mode. I was, um, I was trying to consume all these ideas. Um, the, the, the feeling that was driving me was that I had missed out on all the best ideas, and I had to play catch up. I had to catch up. I had to, I had to get them under my belt, put them in my head as fast as I could, After I had read thousands of books, I didn't feel that same level of desperation or angst. So at this point, I do less reading, but I am far more selective. Mm -hmm. I reread a lot of my favorite things. I reread a lot of Dr. Samuel Johnson's essays from the Rambler, especially. I think he was probably one of the wisest people to ever write. I, I reread a lot of Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, every once in a while I'll read a, a play Hamlet is my favorite It's the best play ever written uh, I reread uh, Michelle Montaigne's essays Francis Bacon's essays I reread Epictetus a lot um, I reread uh, William Butler Yeats, My favorite poet uh, And you know I, I know some things That I enjoy a lot and I think are the wisest things. Uh, I reread the Bible, um, and so what I do is I, I I go back to the stuff that I love, and I spend a lot of time just digging deeper into the best stuff. Right. Uh, occasionally, I will read something that has been written within the last hundred years, but very rarely.
1: No, that makes sense. Um, and, and I'll close out with this: What do you do for fun, Ed? Um, aside
0: from reading, spend time with my wife, man. That's uh, to me is I. The, there's nothing else that I can. Think of that's more fun than that. Yeah. Uh, spend time with my wife, family, and friends. Just time, conversations, just being with them. That that is the best thing that I do.
1: Well, Ed, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad to count you as a friend, man. I feel like I got wiser from this conversation.
0: Well, man, I didn't know. I didn't know I had all this uh, to say, man. I'm glad you asked me to do it.
1: My guest today has been Ed Hopkins. Ed, thanks for joining me today.
0: My pleasure, brother.